everyone, it's the Life and Jam Live video podcast, well actually, live audio podcast now. We are not um, always on video, this one is going to be strictly audio, and just for posterity's sake, today is February 20th, this episode should release this week. And I am so lucky to have one of my favorite people on today, Leticia Del Toro, she's a macondista, I'm going to read her bio, and then... Uh, We're going to get into the meat of the interview. So here goes. Leticia Del Toro is a Chicano poet and fiction writer from Crockett, California. Explorations in Mexico, Spain, and France also inform her work. Her writing has appeared widely, including in Wasache, Zazaba, and Zipotli. I know I said that wrong, so she can fix that. About Place Journal and more. Her fiction chat book, oh, it's so beautiful, Cafe Colima, was published as a 2017 Core Press Fiction Prize. Additional honors and awards include include a Hedgebook Residency, those are hard to get, a Rona Jaffe Award at Breadloaf, and a Story Knife Residency. She has thrived in the writing communities of Vona and Macondo. She holds a BA in Spanish Language and Literature from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MA in English from the University of California, Davis. She has completed a collection of short stories, Leaving Sugar City. While writing is her passion, her most creative work is expressed in teaching motherhood and arts activism. Welcome, Amiga. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. It's so exciting to be here. Like, I've admired your show for so long, and I'm so proud of everything you're doing. So thank you for the invite. Very, very honored to be here. (laughs) I'm so glad to see you. I've missed you so much from our Macondo year together. Um, Would you like to start off reading a section? I'm going to go in the background. You're not going to see me, but I'm still here. Um, Would you like to read a little bit from your book? A, a poem I haven't read too often uh, online or even in person. It's a very personal one. Um, I actually wrote it right before the Black Lives Matter uh, movement really got a lot of traction and, um, you know, people behind it. And I am thinking about this poem so much nowadays because of what is happening in Palestine. And I just feel like it is fitting for now. This is called The Wailing. And it is for the parents who buried their children too soon. I stood at my brother's burial site and moved so someone stronger than me could hold my mother back. All of her leaning into the lowering, we the living there to hold her back. We kept arcing little bits of ourselves in between the loads of earth. We could not let him go. One more photo, one more rose, a ribbon follows, a child stuffed tiger, a kerchief, and hold my mother back. The wailing raged, more like a freight train, more like a mother quake. The fault lines of fury collide. A woman who buries a son must feel those first fetal flutters from full-term feet. To ribs, rewinding ghost baby, threads of milk flow some 30 years later, counter-earthwise. I've fed you to live. You hear all of her, 
liquefy, unroot. Forget the ashes, forget the dust. The universe pulls you inside out. You want to go with your birth blood. The wailing is all. Sound disappears, only heaving and heartwork. I see the mothers and fathers in photo stills. Mouths open, a roaring pose. I will not play the clips. I know the sound. A father upright in his bed. 4 a.m., pure rage fills the house. They tagged the sun, all hours bereft. Rage has no words, immeasurable flight. Fury moves you, fury follows. The wailing multiplied is this movement now. The will to follow, whether son, brother, father, daughter, child, sister, oldest friend, lover you can never become. Keep moving, stay above ground. Pace that place and take direction. Move the world and let the waves resound. Okay, that's a hard one. Um, I have one more. This is a very different tone. And uh, being that we just had February, it is more of a love poem, which is also something I rarely do. This is called Shine. We say goodbye in the quiet harbor, but it feels more like, wait, hold me. Which coast will we walk again? You take my hand and draw murals inside my palm. Altamira, San Carlos, Lasco, Lindosa, all the beauty I can feel now. I watch you eat a clementine. You bite it like an apple. I bite a scoop of ice cream this way because I cannot wait. We are flashes of cinnamon, copper, aurora, burnished rumorosa, creme brulee, candied ginger, flor de jamaica, colors of cantera stone, boysenberry rose, miel de acacia, molten gold I am poured of to hold a jewel of your choice. I will wear you many ways. How to smile at the edge of the world? Camino sin equilibrio, al compás que solo tú puedes seguir. I put my ear to your chest, as if to a seashell. Press my cheek to a cliff. Hang on your heartbeat. Feel life rush in. The music of so many oceans. Wow. So beautifully done. Thank you. And both these poems are from Leticia's new book, all we are told not to touch. And that's available through www.finishinglinepress.com. Thank you, friend. (laughs) And you know what's interesting about the second poem that you read, Shine, and I want to get into Wailing as well, is that there is a very musical quality to your poetry. And there's a little bit of memoir, obviously, too. You write a lot about family and motherhood, death, loss, um, food, culture. But talk about the way that language and music played a role in this book. Is that something that you did purposefully or is it something you did organically, instinctively? Um, I think it just kind of seeped into my experience. Um, there, I feel like there's there's music and there's rhythm and maybe, I don't know, 
a lot of my poems come out of movement or walking or, or hiking mm -hmm. and and just being out kind of wandering around, I guess. Um, yeah. But I also feel like, you know, I, I, I did study dance for a little while. I studied um, flamenco dance for quite a while. And then I, I worked with Latin music as, as part of my profession um, before I started teaching. So I feel like I'm always really immersed in music, whether I'm just engaging in dancing um, or, you know, I've got some music with me and I'm, you know, trekking through a neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I felt that. And yeah. then in The Wailing, you start with this very um, striking sentence. I stood at my brother's burial site and moved so someone stronger than me could hold my mother back, right? So um, The Wailing, which I thought is perfectly appropriate for today, and I wish it wasn't. But talk about how you bring the personal in, right? So this this poem's universal, but it's also very personal to you and to your experience with loss and your family's loss. Are you comfortable talking about that? Sure. And, um, you know, they, the big cliche is, you know, the time heals all wounds and heartaches and all this. It did take me many, many years, probably like, 10, 11, to even be able to reveal poems I had written mm -hmm. in the short time after um, I lost my brother. And my brother was a sibling who was closest in age to me. Um, he was eight years older. So mm -hmm. even that is not like a, a very close uh, segment of time, but he was like my, my next sibling. And um, he was my my big bro and just felt very invincible. Um, but, you know, he we lost him in some very difficult circumstances um, related to his addiction. And it was just very unresolved. So there was a lot of silence in the years after his death. And um, I had, was writing that whole time, um, but not revealing anything to anyone. And at some point, many, many years later, I just got the courage to read what was latest for me. And the, the latest thing for me were these, these grief poems where I, I very much addressed them, you know, and I, I missed him. So in a lot of these poems, there's a you and I'm talking to him. Um, so the wailing is actually one that came much later mm -hmm. after I started seeing um, so much violence, so much police violence toward uh, black men in particular, but then black women. Right. Um, and, and Brown, Brown brothers and sisters too. And, you know, I felt like all of that hit this apex during the pandemic, but even in the years before I was, I was responding to it. And then I began to see my brother's death as part of a larger picture where, you know, I felt society had failed him. Society had left him behind. And he also had a, you know, numerous run-ins with authority and the police and, and there were, there was violence there. So I took what was happening in society and very much connected it to um, my brother's experience and 
ways in which our society, our violence, institutional violence erodes at people and um, breaks people down. And so that, that was my poem about seeing parental grief and uh, just the rawness of that grief. So. Yeah, you have that line, the wailing multiplied is this movement now. Um, beautiful, beautiful. You know, um, as someone who wrote her second book to bring her father back to life, I totally understand um, that sentiment. My friend Cassandra Ro- Lopez, who's from San Bernardino, wrote a book called Brother Bullet. Yes. That, that is uh, just, you know, it rem- you you have so much in common and, but it's just this poem. I almost feel like it needs to be in an art gallery with photos of violence, because I think you capture something that is um, hard to capture, right? Grief, I think is the hardest thing to write about. Um, It's the most personal, but it's also the hardest to capture. My dad, the day my dad died was so horrifying for me. And it took me 15 years to write that story, Mm, to write it right, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I understand that delay because you, you need to process. And I'm glad you mentioned Brother Bullet because that's, that's one of the volumes I have on my shelves. Ah. And I love that book. I connect to that book so deeply. And Cassandra Lopez doesn't really know me. I mean, I met her at a AWP many years ago and, and was so thrilled to find her book because oh, it was talking yeah. about similar things. And so shout out to Cassandra, wherever she may be. Yeah. Cause <laughs> I think she just got a job here in California oh, um, in San Diego. She was in Arizona, I believe. And I think she's moving back. So uh, yeah. One day we all got to get together. Cause you, you and her would just like click. She published my first story is how I met Cassandra. That's and amazing. Then, um, yeah, with her journal as us, uh, a place for women of the world. Let's also talk about the role language plays in your book. There's some, um, I love, I love, I love, I love that you mix the Spanish and the English. And then there are some poems that are purely in Spanish. Um, yeah. When you chose to do that, was that a difficult choice? I mean, how did you reconcile that? I'm glad you did it because... Um, there was one word I looked up that I didn't know what it meant. Um, the poem, what would Diego paint? And you said, I am one generation away from Campesina, which Campesina. means peasant. Campesina, mm-hmm. which means peasant. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I looked up that word. Because sometimes, you know, I was and I'm like, I don't want to, I'm, I'm got to look that up. And then I really felt that blue collar aspect of your yeah. work. It's like mixing American Mexico uh, blue collar with elevation, with food and culture and all this stuff. Talk about that. I mean, it really is kind of a melting pot in a way, uh, for want of a better term. Uh, I love how you merge all these different things together, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I guess I am. I am most comfortable um, weaving in and out of what I feel is like Chicanismos and, and just speaking in the very colorful way that young, both young and old, you know, all people do, all people that are bilingual in the Southwest that are speaking intergenerationally and that are like really attached to certain words that their parents use and love, but 
maybe also incorporate slang from the young people they know. And, you know, they have maybe a firm footing in both worlds and they start, you know, code switching and, and, and Mm -hmm. using different words in this very interwoven sort of texture. Um, I've been doing that for a long time. I was really happy to see that other people did it in literature, you know, like C. Snettles, um, the New Yorican poets. Obviously, Juno Diaz was one of the, the first people that did that too, Ana Castillo. Um, so when I saw it in print and on the page, I felt very validated for something I was already doing um, personally. But there's a couple of poems that are um, you in, entirely in Spanish. They don't switch. Se madre, se madre. Ser madre is one. Uh-huh. And the other one is uh, the Spanish version of Shine, which is a, a slightly different title. It's called Relumbre. And Relumbre is more of a glimmer or a relighting. It's not mm. an actual shine. So the title's a little different. And for those poems, um, they had to be, I felt they had to be entirely in Spanish. Like there was almost like a sanctuary to them being in Spanish. Oh, yeah. Ser Madre, I actually came to me in Spanish. And I think because it evoked so much of this dialogue almost with my mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mother is from Jalisco. She came here when she is 20. Spanish is still her dominant language. And so we have a lot of conversations that are just in Spanish and talking about child rearing, talking about problems with your spouse, talking about all these things. Um, they happen in Spanish for for my mother and I. And oh, um, so beautiful. This this poem really came to me in Spanish. And so the challenge was then how do I capture this language and these references in English? And um, Relumbre, I just felt needed to be in Spanish. I felt like I was, I don't know, living certain emotions in Spanish. And um, there's this very hopeful sensuality that I was trying to capture that that really came alive in Spanish for me in that poem. So, yeah. And, you know, as a pocha whose uh, husband is fully fluent and who lives with a suegra, that <laughs> dominant language is Spanish. I really do think Spanish is a romantic, beautiful language, unlike English is not as romantic in some ways. So I, I see why you would choose to do that. And I'm glad you did it. And, you know, I think, um, for those who are bilingual, it's they're going to read both and just and then for those of us who are not, we can translate it and read it and take our time with it and figure it out. And it's kind of like a little puzzle. And I like that. I like yeah. that challenge me. It is. You know? It is a puzzle. There is a little mystery there. So yeah, and there's a mirroring, right? You have the yes. the uh, shine, which is in English, and then you have the Spanish version, which I think is neat to do within a poetry collection to do the mirroring. Um, I always, the best part of this podcast is when I learn things like that, things that like, um, I remember one guy did this, um, Sean Pravica wrote this uh, short little fiction pieces of less than like 50 words. And then I figured he told me in the podcast that the 
first one always mirrored the 50th one. So if there's a hundred poems, number 151 were, this, were about the same kind of, there was a mirroring. So I like that uh, finding out about sequencing because I think that being a music person myself, my favorite books, and this is one of them, um, have a certain kind of sequencing hmm. that's very specific that almost feels like an album, almost feels like a like there's some music in there, you know? And uh, yeah, beautiful. Oh, great. That's a lovely compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this because there is some a lot of memoir in here. And uh, my favorite poems do tend to have more of the personal. Um, your first, my f- favorite poem in the book is the first one, uh, Cuatro Caminos. Mm-hmm. And um, talk about that poem a little bit. You don't have to read it and you can if you want. I'd love to hear you read it. But also talk about your trilingual, right? Or are you quatrilingual, whatever that's called? Uh, I know you well, speak I, too. I'm comfortable, I guess, saying trilingual. I, I do. I did study Portuguese formally, mm-hmm. but I've lost a ton of it. So I won't go for the cuatro. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do, I do speak French fluently um, yeah. and I'm credentialed in French. So I was teaching French for about 10 years um, in the public schools. So if you dig even a little bit deeper into some of the other poems, you'll, you'll find some French in there too. Yeah, I but, saw that. <laughs> but this first one has, has no French in it. Um, it is, it is sort of a, a tribute to um, visits to go see my grandmother in um, Jalisco. She lived in a little village in Jalisco. It was about two and a half hours away from the coast. So you could sense the coast from her village. Like you could feel the coast in the air and, you know, people bring all this like tropical fruit from, you know, the, the outlying areas and fish and seafood. But um, my mother would, my grandmother rather, um, Lupe, she would never really go to the ocean. She felt more at home in like the mountains and the valleys where she was from. Whereas my dad loved the ocean and his family Mm -hmm. is very keen on going to fish, going to spend holidays to swim And so when we would go back to Mexico, we would try and accomplish both. We would try and pick up grandma. And then sometimes we would take her to the beach with us. And um, she was not very comfortable there. (laughs) And, you know, she had all kinds of warnings for us as we got Mm -hmm. into the water. And um, there was also this very striking tension, speaking of suegras, right, Um, between my grandmother and my father, Um, because my dad was really, you know, he kind of commandeered the trip and he was in charge of the road trip and he was in charge of like how much time we spent at different people's houses. And my mother always had her complaints with him because he would just be like, okay, we're seeing your mom for three hours. We're seeing your sister another afternoon. We're not spending the night there. We're coming back to be with my people And it was this constant kind of, um, you know, rallying around who are we going to be with, you know, and inevitably he won, but (laughs) of course I was, I was so fascinated by my grandmother's house and it was like the most humble kind of casita you could imagine. Um, she actually, you know, she had dirt floors. There wasn't much of a, a bathroom in her back 
corral where the animals were. I mean, it was super, super rural and, you know, poor. She, she lived in yeah. poverty. Um, but she was like the most spectacular person to me. I mean, her, her face was amazing. Her braids were magnificent. Um, I could just, I remember just spending hours holding her face and playing with her rebosos and sitting in her lap and everything she cooked for me, everything that came out of her hands, every food she touched to me was just like magical and tasty. And it was super simple things. It was like, you know, corn or a little, or a little bit of tortilla dough turned to what we call a ranita, like a little toasted frog that she would make into these little shapes. (laughs) Um, or, you know, there weren't many like sweets or cookies or that sort of thing. But, you know, she would make nopales. She would make squash. She would make a quesadilla. And the the cheese was from her, you know, her animals and her, her hands. And so she was a very magical person to me. And I wanted to bring her home. <laughs> you and did. I, you I did. was kind of like... I feel like I was the the only one that was like truly attached to her. I don't know if it was because I was young and I had the imagination to sort of latch onto her, but you know, my, my brothers and sisters were older and they were teenagers and they wanted to get back home. And, you know, this was kind of uncomfortable for them. Whereas for me, it was like this whole world that I wanted to be a part of. And so I felt like, in writing the poem and in continuing to write about Mexico, um, like I'm still making inroads back to those families and to my grandmother and my cousins and just honoring them, you know, trying to constantly honor them. Yeah. Because I mean, um, what I loved about it so much is you have these uh, images as well. That's kind of like, kind of like a little clue to us as the reader you say wear a navy blue skirted one piece and carry a blonde baby alive right so you're bringing in the culture we kind of know what year it is from the reference to the baby alive if you had one which my sister did um we're in the 70s probably or 80s but then there's also that concept of the contrast of americanism with where you are you're in mexico with your grandmother right yeah and the privilege versus the poverty and but also the simplicity versus how complicated life can be in America versus here you're eating squash from a tin cup with chili. You love your grandmother so much that you memorize her face, right? I mean, that's a very powerful poem. I mean, I could almost see this becoming a longer story in some ways about you being with your grandmother because it's almost like she signifies something, like something for you. It's it's not just your grandmother. It's more of like this image of what, like you said, you're trying to get back to, to memorialize. Yeah. She's, she's our history. And also, um, I remember, I just remember thinking she was very beautiful. And Mm -hmm. how does, how does a little kid do that? Like, how does a four-year-old think this 60-year-old wrinkled up, reboso wearing, you know, very crusty old looking lady? How how do you find beauty in that? I, I thought she was magical. Yeah. And, and yeah. when I think about growing old, I, I also think about like, I'm going to be that 
senora with the braid, <laughs> with the sun-kissed skin and the sun-wizened skin and all these things like. Or I already <laughs> wear moo-moos now. <laughs> I love me in moo-moos. Oh, my God. This last trip, yeah, no, my Reboso collection is getting big. It's it's kind of ridiculous how in love I am with the Rebosos. But um, to me, it kind of signaled just this whole other realm of, of beauty and strength because she was also mm-hmm. incredibly strong and um, tough. And, you know, she would stand up to my dad when he'd be like, ah, it's time to go. And she would just like, you know tell him his, she would just like rattle off, you know, all these cuss words and things. And it was shocking, but it was also like, yeah, she's badass. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. You start with that image of the matriarch, right? This is, this is kind of a book that merges these cultures, but then uplifts and almost puts on a pedestal, the image of the matriarch as it should be. <laughs> I would say, yeah, um, I have a story about my grandfather, you know, he was Spanish speaking only, um, he was in his 80s when we would visit him in Norco at the cow farms in a very uh, rustic area that was extremely rural, like dirt floor kind of thing. And I just remember him so well when he would hug me, the scent, he was smelled like cigarettes and like musky. Mm. He called us the Himalas, me and my twin sister, Jackie. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there is something special and profound and, um, Sometimes these stories just come to you, right? I mean, how did you have to work at this poem or did it just kind of come out? This one actually, this one actually almost wrote itself. I mean, I did, I did some revisions, but um, all the imagery was there, all the kind of comparisons to what my brothers and sisters were wanting to do. And it it just was all there. And I, um, I revised this one very little and it's, it's, it's a good poem to share with young people too. And um, I've used it in my classroom. So for any teachers listening out there, you can share it with your kids, your students and any, you know, anywhere from middle school through high school, through, you know, undergrad probably um, and have them write a poem about their own, origins and their own people and their own cherished food. And I actually, you know, if you, if you message me, I have like a little template, like what are the things each writer can come up with line by line that can populate their poem and have it be this sort of cultural treasure poem that's going to describe you uniquely. So if if folks want to get on my website and message me, I can send you this little template for an assignment that creates a poem similar to this, but individual to the very student. Oh, that's very generous of you. What's your website? So it's pretty easy. It's leticiadeltoro.com. Just my first name, my last name all together. It's new. I'm excited to have it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I have this theory myself about writing. And I said it in a presentation before to college that if you uh, find a place that speaks to you and you're writing about a time that's important to you and about people that matter and an image, the poem will, or the story will 
will write itself. I actually went into a trance when I wrote that story about my grandfather. Mm, I do wow. not remember writing it. I have never edited one word of it. Wow. It came out fully formed. And I had read a story in the New Yorker about a woman who gave back an inheritance that her caretaker left her. And okay. she gave it to whoever it was. it should have went to. And I remembered how my grandfather left everything to my mom. Yes. And actually did not leave anything to her seven brothers and sisters. Um, because he had abandoned my mom when her my mom was the youngest. Her mom died when she was 14. And um, my mom split it up between all her siblings. Yeah, that's incredible. And the story came out fully formed after I read that New Yorker. I sat down. I wrote the story called My Grandpa's House in like an hour. Wow. So, yeah, that's I amazing. think there's. There's, there's ancestors that talk to us through our work, whether they're on our shoulder, or in our ear, or in our head, in our mind's eye. I think you're right. And I, I would urge everyone to go to your website, email you and get, because I think that can really help people figure out how to write truth without being cliche, because you're writing the personal. Yeah, absolutely. And every every single person has a poem in them about a treasured family member, about their language, about the foods they would offer. And everyone's is different. Everyone's is different. Or maybe not the foods they would offer, the foods they would withhold, right? Depending yeah. on who you're surrounded by. So um, I've, I've done it with a few classes and I just love the results afterwards, hearing the different poems and you know just what's crafted afterwards. From that exercise. Yeah. And your book made me hungry. There's a lot of food in this book as well. You talk about jicama, you talk about beers and stale chips, you talk about the food your grandmother would make you. Um, did you realize you did that? Because some people don't realize, like I interviewed Isabel Quintero, who wrote a book called Gabby, a girl on pieces, and food is everywhere in that book. I mean, you want to talk yeah. about it. And she didn't realize she did it, right? She yeah. was like, people would tell me afterwards, oh, Gabby loves to eat, you know, and I'd be like, girl, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do you feel about the food images? Um, um, I feel like they're more purposeful for you. For they're pretty reason. purposeful. And then yeah. it's just because, like, I, I'm a pretty food-focused person. Like, you know, I'm a mom. I'm cooking all the time. And even when I wasn't a mom, I, I came from a household that uh, – was very food focused. And my mom is an incredible cook. It's part of my bio. <laughs> my mom was a homemaker and a magical cook. Um, and she, she did have all these um, incredible recipes from Jalisco that um, she mastered. And then she learned from her friends. And then a lot of like 1950s uh, recipes from uh, other housewives that she met when she came to the town that she moved to, which was Crockett, California. So um, she was always making things from scratch. She was always making, you know, my dad's paycheck stretch. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about it, like technically, if you look at, you know, like my parents' income, um, yeah, we were poor, right? We were poor. Um, I never felt that because yeah, yeah. she was always providing and super creative and um, as as a grown adult, like, I don't know, having good meals, making good meals, cooking, shopping for the right ingredients. For me, that's almost like therapy. 
it's it's what makes me happy it's what calms me it's what makes me feel satisfied that i'm you know bringing to my family or my friends um so food is a big big is part of the big picture <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah. And to, okay. There's a lot of writers that also listen in and we have about 10, 15 more minutes here. I want you to read at the end to at least one more poem, but talk about your publishing journey, because I think that um, it's not magic. You know, people would tell me, Oh, it'll just happen for you. And I really feel like if I hadn't focused on eventually finding a publisher, the book would have just sat in my drawer and it was only because of COVID. And I felt like I could die with the manuscript unpublished that I felt like I had to do it and I had to find someone and I was going to make it happen, small press, whatever. If I had to publish it myself, I would have. Um, talk about your first book, Cafe Colima, which I also love. I wish we had time to talk about that one too, but I really wanted to focus on all we are told not to touch. Talk about your publishing journey. Please talk about the cover and the title. Oh, um, okay. The cover is so beautiful. <laughs> For those of you who are listening in, um, the cover is a hand holding like a goddess and there's water. Talk about all of that, your publishing journey, how you got published, your first publishing. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, I actually started as a fiction writer. That's how I viewed myself. And that's mostly what I was writing were short stories. Um, I felt like that's what I, I learned to really sink my teeth into when I was in grad school. And I, um, did my MA at the University of California, Davis with, with Pam Houston. And we spent a lot of time on short stories. So um, I didn't publish many right away. Um, I was actually um, in my early 40s. I had just hit 40 when I published my first short story. And um, I've been very slow. And part of that is, well, okay, I I have a family, I'm job, family. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I take my writing very seriously, but I'm not, I haven't been out there hustling to get the publications in and, and all of that. So I had a handful of short stories. I kept working on the short story collection. Um, Cafe Colima won what to me felt like a significant prize because it was chosen by Edvige Danticat. Um, Haitian American writer who I absolutely love. She's one of my heroes. So she chose that story, which is more of a novella length for the Corey Fiction Prize in, I think, 2017. Yeah, it's been a little while. Um, so that was published. It lived on its own in the world in this limited edition. And after that, I thought, well, yeah, you know, I'm on the road. I'm going to get my whole collection published. And I'm I'm still working with that manuscript. I I've only pitched it to um, a couple of agents. I haven't quite found the right spot for it. Um, but in the meantime, my poetry was stacking up because um, poetry is like my go-to for survival, if you will. And the short stories are more like this immersive artwork that I do when I have a big chunk of time. So the poems were stacking up and at some point, you know, I saw a couple calls for publications and I thought, I think I have a manuscript in poetry actually. So I sent it off and it won a prize and they offered me a contract. And wow. so I said, sure, it's chapbook length. It's not a full length collect collection, but 
I am thrilled to have it in the world. I'm thrilled to be able to take it to readings and, and share with readers. And a lot of people have connected with it. So um, I'm, I'm incredibly pleased that it is published and in the world. And as far as the, the artwork, I agonized over, oh my gosh, what is going to be on this cover? Um, I knew I wanted to have some sort of Latina figure that represented sensuality. And I knew I wanted um, the idea of touch to be evoked. So whether there were like hands or um, some sort of point of contact, I knew I wanted those things. And I kept trying to follow artists and ask people, hey, do you know an artist? And I was coming up with nothing. But one day I was walking through the mission and um, I I ran into In San Francisco. Yeah. I ran into the women's building and this is actually a photo of one part of the mural that is on the women's building. Oh, wow. And it is a collaboration um, by many muralists. Um, the, the lead muralist is a woman named Juana Alicia who has worked in San Francisco and in Mexico. She has lived in both countries and, um, she had a whole group of sister muralists that she worked with on the women's building. And it's called the Maestra piece, not the masterpiece, the Maestra piece. <laughs> so um, what you see on the cover, the hand that's there is actually the hand of Rigoberta Menchu from Guatemala. And so if you see the whole building, you, see, you would see Rigoberta Menchu on it. And oh. the, the woman coming out of her hand is uh, Yemaya. So she is, you know, the goddess of the oceans and fertility and femininity. Um, and that made total sense to me, too, because there were so many ocean references and, um, you know, the references of fertility and matriarchy and all of these things. So it just came together. And um, I, I didn't think I could... I could actually like access it or get permission. I thought it was a, such an extreme long shot. Um, but I had, I had met Juana Alicia, the lead muralist just a few years before. Um, I, I crashed a dinner party and I met her. And so she was still kind of like in my contacts. And so I messaged her and I said, Hey, I absolutely adore this particular inset of Maestra piece. And I have this poetry collection what are the chances I could license it and use it as my cover art? Here's some poems to let you know, like how, how much it connects and how much it reflects. And she wrote me back like the sweetest letter and said, Hey, I'm going to take this to my sister painters and collaborators and ask them because it's our collective work. And so, yeah, we set up an agreement to license it. And I was wow. I felt so blessed. I felt so lucky, lucky, lucky to have the artwork on there and um, to help, you know, get it out in the world too. Right. So it's a part yeah. of San Francisco, which is, you know, part of my like childhood background, San Francisco, I've been in Northern California all my life. Um, and just being able to like uplift the muralist too is, is so amazing for me. It's a big honor. Yeah. That's really interesting because I recently had Tisha, uh, Reikli Aguilera on who yes. um, wrote a book about a Chicana cowgirl from Riverside. Yeah, Tisha. <laughs> and she was able to get a painting uh, commissioned to be on her cover. 
Oh, gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. So I just think it's really interesting to realize that as a writer, you can bring in other types of art and kind of try. You all you. The only thing people can say is no, right? right. So sometimes you can ask your favorite artist or your favorite, you know, for some, you know, ability to license the cover art because I think cover art's really important. Oh, it's hugely important. Yeah. And it's such a vivid part of your collection. And I just had to read um, the end of the, I was, uh, I had read your blurbs a couple times, but I, the one by Juan Felipe Herrera, he says, um, is it love? Perhaps love, perhaps if it can be touched, I am moved by this collection in particular by its blurred lenses, senses, its arousals, its lures, its boldness and daring. Incredible, a new accomplishment. Bravissimo del toro, bravissima. I mean, what what a blurb, right? From Juan Felipe Herrera, who was poet laureate of the United States. I mean, that's amazing. That, that when I received that, when I read it, I, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. And it made me cry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... I had known Juan Felipe for a little bit and had been in different circles with him and, and actually read with him, you know, a couple times and, and so looked up to him and his work. So for him to, to create those words and, you know, render such a beautiful blurb was such an honor and like the cover art, like another, another blessing to lend to the work. And um, I just felt, super grateful, super special uh, about having it out in the world with folks supporting. Yes. So everyone go out and get this book, All We Are Told Not to Touch, Poems by Leticia Del Toro from uh, new, its New Women's Voices series number 169. It's available from Finishing Line Press. Talk about um, just really quick what you're doing now, what's next for you, what's next on the horizon, how people can find you. You already said your website, but you can say it again. And okay. then if you want to shout out any orgs that you think are particular great. I know you did a Hedgebook residency. That is extremely hard to get. Um, if you want to just touch on that real quick. Yeah. Um, so what I'm doing now, I'm actually working on a novel. I had a novel framework in my mind and some initial research for many, many years. Um, but I finally buckled down and said, hey, I have to get this on paper and really dig in. So um, last summer I received a grant. I was super excited and again, honored from the new literary um, project. And they offer um, grants to many different organizations and mid-career writers and also public school teachers, actually private school teachers too, um, high school teachers who are creative writers and have a track record of, of writing. So I was, um, I was honored to receive that and that helped me go to Mexico and do some research and gain some traction in my novel. So I'm continuing awesome. to work on that. I hope to have, um, you know, a solid manuscript soon. Um, but it, it does take an enormous amount of work. Um, I'm still, you know, working on my short stories. I have a collection um, that that manuscript is much more formed and, and ready for folks to see. So um, I'm circulating that a bit, see if it gets picked up in the world. Um, what else? There's, there's a few organizations that have been amazing in supporting me. 
Um, one of them is Story Knife in Alaska, of all places, in Homer, Alaska. And they are built very much um, on the Hedgebrook model. So it's a retreat for women writers um, in, in many genres. And they offer housing, meals, support, beautiful cabins, beautiful individualized cabins on Kachemak Bay in Alaska. And I was fortunate to stay with them for a month um, in August, not this past August, but the one previous. And wow, did that like open up my creativity. And that's really where I started these first chapters of my novel. Wow. Which is called Return to Asusena. Return to Asusena. Um, so Story Knife, look them up. They're amazing new literary project. Macondo, of course, if you um, want community, you're looking to Latino writers and multicultural writers, there is an amazing, you know, week-long conference, or, or maybe it's like five days, five-day conference that happens in uh, San Antonio. And of course, Vona. Vona is where I started out and I think Vona is doing a lot more online and like a lot more um, sort of seasonal conferences throughout the year, but they are also a source of, um, you know, providing community, providing training, providing safe networking spaces and, and workshopping spaces, like, you know, getting to truly share your work. So those places have sustained me. And I, I think of them as Play, they're organizations, but they're also yeah. places because you go and you meet folks. And um, I want to yeah. go to Story Knife. I mean, I, I just watched True Detective uh, with Jodie Foster that was um, actually produced by a Latina, Isa Lopez. Oh, um, cool. And it's amazing. And it takes place in Alaska. And, and it's Alaska, even though it's filmed, I think, in Greenland. Uh, but um it has a very indigenous Latina vibe to it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine what being in that kind of landscape would do to creativity. I think it would just come out, right? There's ghosts, like, like <laughs> spinning it was around in, you. It was incredible. And it was, like, mm -hmm. so strikingly beautiful because you have these meadows and then you have these cliffs and then this bay and you just have this view across the bay. And wow. I, I grew up near a little bay. So to me, it felt like, okay. I grew up in the little bay. Here I'm in this giant bay in Alaska. And across the bay were these incredible like glaciers and volcanoes and just the raw beauty of it. I felt so honored to be there. Like the, the earth is holding me in this special place so yeah. my gifts can shine. And that's how nurtured and cared for I felt. I made incredible friends. Um, it was just just a gorgeous time and a really introspective time too. I really, I needed it. I needed to be away from my family. Love well, yeah. my family. They make me cookies and, and give me all sorts of like dramatic things to write about. But ultimately sometimes you need to be away. And well, yeah. And I think it. if you have a lot of responsibilities, like we both do both working full time, caretaking for people and stuff, 
I think it's really important to realize to be kind to yourself with how long stuff takes, but also to make time and space for yourself because sometimes you do need to get away. You know, it's hard though. Right now, I don't have that ability in my life that easily, but uh, yeah, I would love to go to Story Night. Maybe next year I'll apply. That would be fun. Apply. Everyone should apply. And I know it's hard when you see these places are super competitive and, you know, maybe you've applied a couple times already, but you know, just, just keep at it. You owe it to yourself to give yourself those multiple chances. And every time I get a little bit discouraged, I think, Hey, there's so many people that, that supported these organizations and and they picked me and they paid for me to keep on doing the work. So damn it. I'm going to keep doing the work. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And you're doing multi-genre. I mean, you're doing fiction, short story, fiction, uh, poetry. You're a very accomplished author. You do essays, you teach. I mean, you really are a Renaissance woman. Um, (laughs) So everyone, before we end, um, I want you to end with the poem, but I want to let everyone know that um, this episode will be released this week, the week of February 20th, um, sometime this week, uh, probably within the next two, three days from today. Today's the 20th. So by the 23rd, no later than that. And then next week, I'll be interviewing one of my favorite people, Romaine Washington, who edited this Blacklandia anthology by Landia Press called These Black Bodies Are. It's a collection from black writers and it's, it's, it's stunning. So everyone now go get all we are told not to touch poems by Leticia del Toro from finishing line press. Also get her book cafe Colima. And then if you have money left over, get these black bodies art. And if anyone um, shares this episode on my podcast, I will put you in a drawing for a copy of Leticia's book. Oh, great. Gorgeous. Please share this episode so can you lead us out with a poem and then stick around really quick at the end um after we're done but uh lead us out with the poem okay i've got one more for you it's called just outside the gate you can breathe a cumbia that someone else is bumping it's a summons for your sway your loose ambling saunter mom hisses because you're a girl who hangs outside ¿Qué andas haciendo en la calle, dejándote mirar? My gaze at strangers when they gaze back is much too forward. Es que también me gusta mirar. But I'm not just talking about men. I love the kids running wild on the sidewalk, in and out of each other's houses, improvising canchas on a not-so-busy street, singing to Rihanna on a warehouse pallet, rigging a swing to a regal tree. I love the viejitos talking about who they seen at La Pulga, or si su viejita lo agarró pelándole ojo a la del security gate en la refinería. I love the seven-year-old's choreo magic, meñándose y dando taconazo a la cumbia tribalera, paletas in hand, and flip-flops not abiding. Someone's artful edible salsa rules the block. I mean, soul-cleansing chile guajillo and windowsill cilantro. Palas tostadas, comadrita, no seas mala. ¿Por qué no invitas? So much to take in beyond the gate. No me importa que mami me dé una jalada cuando llegue a casa. I've seen Yadira, Ishel, and Xiomara, these little girls trading beanie boos and homemade bracelets, and their masterpieces of neon chalk mark the way to the second grade pachanga. Long live the mini callejeras. Glad you've learned to play outside. 
Wow. Oh, my gosh. That one begs to be read aloud. Thank you. That one just outside the gate. Beautiful mix. Oh, my gosh. What a beautiful, beautiful reading. Thank you, Leticia. Thank you for coming on. You, I hope to see you in person soon. Okay, oh everybody, God. we're going to end now. But please review this episode or share it, and you can win a copy of All We Are Told Not to Touch, poems by Leticia Del Toro. Okay? So go out and get Thank her book. Bye, everybody. Gracias. Cuídense. Mm-hmm.